Lost Talk Radio. Sylvia, your host of sylviaglobal.com. Thank you so much for joining us live today here at sylviaglobal.com. An exciting roundtable discussion to take place that will kick off a series regarding women in election, why we are needed. Um, Joining us from literally around the world first is Neve Gallagher, um, co-founder of Women in Election in Ireland. She's um, was last week's featured guest and this week's featured guest on Sylvia Global's homepage. We also have Tiffany Dufu from the White House Project here in the United States, uh, one of the four leaders, um, forerunners of um, that's being funded to support getting women from grassroots level of elected office all the way up to the White House. We have the incredible um, leadership representation of. Um, the Women's Campaign School at Yale, and that leader is Deb Sofil, a wonderful, wonderfully talented, um, experienced woman in coaching women and others at various levels of high office in the United States and abroad. And we have Moher Sidwa um, joining us. Moher is actually a woman who is running for elected office here in the United States, um, she grew up in Pakistan and brings a global and national perspective to this discussion. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Wonderful. Very well. Thank you. Very um, good. Good. We're going to start with you, Neve, um, introducing your organization um, to the, you know, to our listeners, what you're doing there in um, in Dublin and throughout Europe, and why it is important. And then we'll go from Neve to Deb Sofield. Sure. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, Greetings from Dublin, where we're in the evening time already. Um, My organization is called Women for Election, um, and our vision is of a balanced participation between women and men in political life in Ireland. And our mission is to inspire and equip women to succeed in politics. And we do this through running a series of training and support programs for women that want to take the next step on their political journey. And I suppose this is important because in Ireland at the moment, we have just 15% women elected at national level. And that is the highest number of women that we have ever had in the history of our state. In fact, just 91 women have ever been elected nationally in Ireland. So we need some serious change. Um, if we're to shift that figure and increase it significantly. So that is what Women for Election is about doing. Deb, can you talk to us about the work that you do and the reason that the the Women's Campaign School at Yale exists? Yes. Actually, the Women's Campaign School at Yale is one of the oldest uh, organizations that has been training women to run for public office. We are a nonpartisan Uh, campaign program. Your speakers are from both sides of the aisle. And we do that so we really reach a larger audience. As you well know, we don't have enough women in office. There is not parity. And hardly any state is a nation where you have the voice of the other half of your population. Women's Campaign School is housed at Yale University in the law school. We're actually not a part of the university. We have the good fortune of being housed there, and we've had a long-standing relationship with them. Our goal is to train women from not only America but around the world, like Neem, who was one of our students, to um, learn the basics of campaign politics. The fact is, if you're not careful and you don't understand the basics, you get into this, and it can be a very rough ride, and then you wonder where to turn for support and help, that's where the campaign school comes in. It's a network of friends who have gone through the program together who actually can advise and help each other along with faculty that are primarily top in their field. Uh, We've learned years ago we believe that women need to be taught by other women who have gone through the campaign uh, world themselves, and so we have a very unique perspective 
on giving women the tools they need to run and win elections, no matter where you are. Thank you very much. Tiffany, can you talk about the work of the White House Project and how it's also consistent in, uh, with the, the two messages that were just shared here by Neve and Deb? Oh, absolutely, and I feel really privileged to be in the company of these leaders. You know, we're all in the space for very similar reasons. We have leadership at the highest levels that currently does not reflect um, our population, and we, we really believe in changing that. My dad used to, when I was growing up, have you know, all of these conspiracy theories about how there were a very few group of select people that were basically running the world. And I used to be so embarrassed, you know, when my friends would come over and he would be talking about these masterminds of the universe. But I have to admit, you know, my dad was right. And until that group of people is really diversified and expanded with more women, then we really are not going to be able to innovate the most um, creative solutions for all of the world's problems. The White House Project ignites the leadership of women in business and politics. We connect, coach, and educate an ever-expanding alumni network of 14,000 women nationwide. Um, we focus on women aged 21 to 35, so for the most part, millennial women, and we activate their ambition and their creativity and the skills necessary for innovative and effective leadership. We've uh, been doing this work since 2004, although we were founded in 1998, and are very much focused on the next generation of women leaders. Is the infiltration of that that, that select group that your father used to refer to, is the um, penetrating that um, select group um, harder than most people, than you would have imagined, or are you finding through your work and the work like this of Deb and Neve that it's actually something that can truly occur? Well, there are, there are many barriers to breaking um, those, and some of them are focused on the women themselves and their own mindsets and skills and behaviors, and a lot of us have our work that is central to that. But we also have systematic barriers and we have institutional barriers, notwithstanding a real good old boys network that's very difficult to penetrate, um, but that we believe with more women ascending and more women in leadership, we'll be able to actually um, get through. And certainly there are some prominent examples of that. Thank you. Uh, Mohar Sidwak, yes. Mohar, you and I had the wonderful opportunity to meet in Tucson a couple mm -hmm. of years ago when I put together, a, convened that bi-national U.S.-Mexico economic summit. And yes. one of the um, first impressions, there were three really strong impressions that were made upon me But when I met you. One was that here you are, um, a woman, in the local political arena um, of great influence and able to pull together um, leaders across both party lines, but um, specifically the Democratic, but you worked across both party lines for the good that was needed across the border and at the U.S.-Mexico border specifically. Um, the other impression that you made on me was how, uh, and we talked about it quite a while, as a you know, a Pakistani um, woman, when people see you, you know, they see someone from, you know, the Middle East, and you have um, been able to garner support and to break barriers by just being as authentic and genuine as possible. And then that third area um, that you made an incredible impression upon me were, was that you were actually developing um, men and women to run for office and then decided to throw yourself <laughs> into the ring um, yes. in order to do that. Can you talk about your background, where you are right now in the campaign mm -hmm. process and some sure. of the lessons you've learned? Sure. Uh, while I was born in India, when my I'm parents sorry, separated, yes. no, that's yeah. okay. When my parents separated, I wound up in Pakistan and spent my teens there. Uh, as such, I'm well aware of politics and geopolitics. Nonetheless, 
I didn't I did not think I would have a shot at running for office. So I found myself working within the party apparatus and I really did work hard. I found I had a gift for finding the right people for the right office and helping them win. However, I was consistently disappointed in their performance. And so at this point, with our legislature being very conservative in Arizona, especially with regards to women's health and women's reproductive rights, I figured it was time for somebody who has seen what it's like for women to be suppressed to stand up and say, not in my Arizona. And so I decided to run for office, and this is my second try. First time I came within 1% of beating a former incumbent. This time I have more name recognition, and I do believe I do have a lot of supporters. However, as I think it was Tiffany who said, there is an old boys network, and in Arizona, especially in the Tucson area, uh, they are the businessmen, mostly men, uh, who are not supportive. Nonetheless, uh, I'm working as hard as I can, and the women are supportive, but let's see what happens. This is a competitive district, leaning Democratic a bit. I am Democrat. So we will see what happens. I'm feeling confident, but I do know that I'm constantly struggling against the old boys network and the business people who assume that because I am a female, I don't understand their issues, and I'm not given a hearing. Um, I do try to make appointments with the leadership, but I'm brushed off. And, uh, but that's what a lot of women have to deal with. Neve, do you find that this is the experience of women in Ireland as well? Yes. Um, I suppose in a country where we've only ever had 15% women elected to national office, it's inevitable that politics is traditionally a men's game. Um, we do, I suppose, particularly in rural areas, have quite a conservative country. Um, and, and thus, some of the, the, the kind of barriers that women face and the experience that women have even when elected is that they remain slightly on the outside. And I suppose whilst it is an important, an important barrier, that culture barrier and that boys club barrier, it, it's not to underestimate some of the other barriers that women face before they even get to that stage. And we would always, when we're talking about some of the challenges women face in getting into politics, list those five C's. That are um, that are proven through international research to be the, the barriers that need to be gotten over, and I expect they're the same in the U.S. and in Ireland, and I know across Europe, cash, culture, candidate selection procedures, childcare, and confidence. And yes, the, the boys' club is the culture piece, but really, the women we're working with through our programs are very, very. Um, I suppose, concerned by the, the confidence barrier, and I've been shocked to come across women who have reached the top of their game in professional circles, who are leading community organizations, um, non-governmental organizations and similar, and yet they don't see the transfer of their skills into political life. Um, I think that is actually a huge, a huge challenge for us. Um, Tiffany, is this something that you see consistent with participants in the White House project? Well, absolutely. I mean, there are so many barriers to advancing women's leadership in politics. But of course, um, you know, our friends over at the Center for American Women in Politics at, at Rutgers, Debbie Walsh, and, you know, Deb, I'm sure would tell you that the biggest reason why we don't have more women in elective office right now is because they don't run, which is really speaking to Neve's point. And, and when you get at the heart of why they don't run, it often does go back to their own what we call self-viability, um, how they perceive themselves in relationship to the rest of the world. Um, although women absolutely face discrimination and sexism and there are, there are all kinds of barriers, um, at the end of the day, 
women who, you know, in comparative races who run against men actually win their races um, at, at pretty successful rates. The challenge is that we just need more women to run. And so that's where recruitment efforts, um, like all of the ones that we're engaged in right now, are really important. And if there's anything that someone who's listening can do to inspire and to help all of our, our work, it's to invite uh, a woman to run because as Neve and Deb both know, women really need to be invited to lead several times before they really um, some, sometimes perceive themselves as the viable leaders that they in fact are. Deb, at what point do you um, connect with potential candidates or with candidates and how long are you generally engaged with them to, You know, during their political aspirations and their political careers? Well, if you're asking me as a speech coach, I'm usually one of the first people that they need to come up with so we can craft their message on why they should be elected. Um, if you're talking about the Women's Campaign School, I'll agree with Tiffany. There's so many things that are very similar. By the time you come to Yale, though, you have probably made the decision to run. And it's very – then that makes our school a little bit different. We're a five-day school, so you get everything from the nuts and bolts all the way down to your campaign speech, debate coaching, video coaching. Because remember, people remember what they see more than what they hear, and you've got to look like that person or the candidate or position that you're running for. So as an executive speech coach, as I work with candidates from all spectrums, my job is to help them craft a message – that is repeated and remembered, and that they're not just talking, but people listen and take action. So that's that's when you would engage a speech coach to help you craft your message. And it's got to be more than crime education and taxes. You have to have a reason for the run. Um, and that reason, as my friends Tiffany and Nim and, and our friend in Oklahoma will tell you, that's what sets you apart from the other people who are just thinking about running. Deb, talk to us about uh, the the types of women who who tend to run for office and that you work with. You know, is there are there some common characteristics, and what are those characteristics? I would think tenacity is the number one. At the end of the day, you have to believe you deserve a seat at that table. And if you don't think that you deserve a seat, they will never make an opening for you. You know, most women run because something happened. They saw an injustice. They decided early on that, you know what, I'm not going to let this happen under my watch. And because of that, that drives them to the table. Very rarely does a woman wake up in the morning and go, oh, my gosh, I should run for governor. No, she's going to have done some things in her community, and she saw how the system was broken, and she saw that she could make the fix. So why women are so great at running for office is more than collaboration. It's really an eye on the prize of being able to fix something and then move on to the next thing. I've been elected for almost 14 years in public office, and I keep getting elected because if I give my word, you know I'll keep it. You also know that if, if something were to come up, I'll pick up the phone and call you. Women bring that to the table. We also many times don't vote in a group. We vote for the issues that we care about. And that's how good programs such as the Rutgers program, the White House Project, Yale Campaign School, when we find women who have a passion and a desire and a reason for the run, that changes everything. Now, I will tell you this. It's becoming more and more a game about money. If you don't have money, you're going to struggle out here. So the type of women that we're seeing now who have been very successful in business and now kind of give the standard, I think I'd like to give back. But here's why I would be good. And then they would give me that reason. Either they're in banking or finance or real estate or technology. They bring something to the table, not just the fact that they wake up and think they should be important. They were important before they ran. And running simply gives us a title to make things happen. Does that um, create a greater divide then in terms of just economics and people who, a, a woman who is passionate, who's committed, but doesn't come from wealth? Doesn't that create a, a new divide in terms of who has access and setting up a new 
creating a new network, so to say, that isolates or eliminates participation of others? Well, yes and no. I mean, the reality is you don't have to have money. You have to be able to raise the money. So I have a lot of friends that can really chuck in some big checks into my account because they trust me. Now, do I put my own money in? Yes, as a loan. But at the end of the day, you don't have to have money. You have to have access to money. So does it leave people out? No. If you're not a good fundraiser, I think Tiffany can tell you the same thing from the White House Project. If you can't afford to go to one of their trainings or a Yale campaign training, um, then you're not a good fundraiser. So your friends need to believe in you enough that they're going to write you a check to send you to training. So, tr- And that's how we start. Um, it's funny. A lot of people call up and say, well, you, you know, you should just let me come. Uh, okay, and why would we do that? So it's about learning how to fundraise. And here's the deal. When I give you money to your campaign, I am committed to your campaign, and I will work to see you win. You will notice now many of these very wealthy, self-funded campaigns don't get off the ground. They have a lot of money, but nobody wants to vote for them because they're not part of their process or their campaign family. So please don't be dissuaded by money. You have to be able to find it to run. But, yes, when I was a kid, good, honest, moral people could run. Nowadays, you know, if you got money, you can play, whether you carry those good characteristics or not. We hope you have them because it leads to poor governance if you don't. Mulher, what are your experiences related to raising money? In Arizona, we have something called clean elections, whereby we raise $225 contributions, and there is a fund that gives us the bare-bone minimum to run with, and that's all we are allowed, which forces us to get very creative to network that much more, Uh, There are candidates who run traditional, and there are some who run clean. So, And both actually can win, depending on their campaign message and their, as she had mentioned, tenacity. Um, It's a problem in Arizona right now because of redistricting and all sorts of other issues. Money is scarce, so those who are running traditional are having a problem raising money Uh, in particular, the women are. And I have noticed that unless they are incumbents, that's a different issue, but there are very few female incumbents at this point. And uh, that's kind of where it's at. Yes, money does play a role because I had to think hard about the advantages of raising about 30% extra versus what I've gotten from the Clean Elections Commission. But the time I would raise, I would spend raising the funds would be taking away from campaigning whereby everybody vests $5 in me uh, and I turn those in. So, yes, it's important for them to vest even a little bit in me. What kind of sacrifices, Moher, have you made along the, you know, since you've entered this this political arena? Uh, I am no longer working. I cannot. I have a contested primary. Um, I am working on my campaign pretty much full-time, and that is an economic sacrifice, a big one, because, you know, one has to use one's savings if one is not earning. Nonetheless, that is a commitment I have made. And, of course, family, friends, everything sort of takes a back seat when this is going on. Mercifully, they all understand of uh, Neve, what kind of sacrifices do women in Ireland make when they're when they make that final commitment and decision to run for office, and what type of support are you seeing that they need? Sure. Well, I think one of the things to say is that in terms of money, campaigning in Ireland is very different to what Deb and, and Mulher and Tiffany have described in the U.S. Um, there's not so much campaign finance required and we have very different rules governing elections so that is perhaps not the barrier um, that we experience. I suppose the greatest challenge is time and managing family life with full-time campaigning and many of the women that come on our programs talk particularly about what we sometimes call the sixth C 
healthy uh, conscience and the difficulty of not seeing children for three weeks in a row or of missing Mother's Day or missing a school play and how many, many of the women that are running, although they're absolutely convinced about the election that they're fighting and their need to be there at that table, really find that a very difficult personal challenge um, and it's something that we work with them a lot in our programme around building resilience um, developing stronger confidence in that area and also managing their personal and their political lives in a way that facilitates them to do both and to have boundaries between both but as all the women uh, in this interview know that when it comes to election time really it is 24-7 100% of the time and that is difficult um, for women for women with families Thank you Tiffany, what is the most important issue that you would like to see or have the listener hear and understand uh, when it comes to women in elected office and why we need to be there? What 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 would your message be for them to hear? Um, well, there are a couple. The first is the a real clear message around the importance of diversity of leadership in order for us to get past what amounts to, in our country, an enormous amount of stalemate. Um, research after research study has shown that a diverse group of individuals coming together to solve a problem are able to come to a better solution and create better outcomes than a more homogenous group. And uh, the, the biggest message is really a message around diversity and the importance of it at leadership at all levels, but especially at the highest level. The second message is really around um, partly our tagline, Ignite Your Leadership, the whole notion that your leadership is in your hands. You know, women often have really phenomenal ideas about how to make the world a better place. The challenge is getting women to understand that the most efficient avenue to create the kind of change that you want to see in the world is making an investment in your own leadership. It's very much like Deb described. Part of the reason, in fact, we've been able to recruit so many women to you know, run for office, to even consider this as an option, is because we first start with what they care about, with where they are, with what matters to them. And then we say, look, the, the platform that you have, the issue that you care about, whatever it is that you want to achieve, you can do it more efficiently and you can do it faster um, by being in a position of power and influence. And we're here to help you along the way, as are many other organizations. So those are the two messages and there are the two issues that I think are really important. Deb, how about you? What what are your what's the important message that the audience needs to hear from you in this on this topic? Okay, here's here's the key for every woman candidate out there. Stop telling me how smart you are and tell me stories that brought you to this day. Most of my women candidates want to stand up and cite, cite statistics and facts and issues, and it just bores your audience. You need to stand up and say the reason you're running is X, and it's a story about your children, your grandparents, your family, the street, the neighborhood dog. Um, I, I just am just mortified when women stand up and try to prove their intelligence. Let's just assume you are because you are running for office. Now, let's talk about why they need to elect you. So my message to so many women out there is you've got, you've got it wrong. We remember how you make us feel, so I need a story that tells me that you understand what it's like when my husband lost his job. So you understand that you get it when you've, you know, something terrible happens or something good happens. So, you know, as I teach women to craft their message for success, you've got to change your mindset because it's not really what you say, it's what your audience needs to hear. And what they need to hear from women is that you are strong enough to fight for me and to take it to the mat and you won't back down. And guess what? You are honest, you are fair, and you're forthright. So the, the good news is women do this so well if they're just taught the real basics of true campaign uh, chatter, conversation, and political thought. 
unfortunately, very few people teach this way. They they want you to stand up and bore people with facts and statistics. And I'm telling you, it's killing women out there because they haven't thought this through. So, um, yeah, that's my message. Craft your story. They're not long. They're little tidbits that give me an, uh, a little flash into your life. Because here's the deal. If you've done A, B, and C, I know you can do L, M, N, N, and P. Deb, we have a question. Thank you very much. We have a question from a listener for you, and it's coming from from Norma in Boise, um, Idaho. She wants to know what are the expectations that reporters and stakeholders have of public figures, particularly women? Well, you know what, honesty. Do not lie. If you lie, we'll find it, and we will beat you to death with it. Uh, I, if you make a flub on YouTube, I'll play it till I grind you to dust. Reporters, listen, they just need the story. Don't give too much. Don't give too little. Make sure you can stand by your facts. And I teach most of my clients to get used to words like normally, generally, probably, usually. If you are so specific and I find out you're wrong, I'm going to claim that you're wrong on everything. Think about what I hear when you speak. Okay. Neve, uh, we have a question also for you from Cheryl in Cleveland, Ohio. She wants to know what advice you can share with women in other countries in terms of best practices from your organization. Sure. Well, I mean, the top the top things that, that we're teaching at the moment on our program, and it may seem like basic things, but they are the most important things that women running for office need to know. The first is your research. Do your research. Are you fighting the right election? Do you know your district? Do you know inside out what demographic you are targeting? What issues are resonating with that demographic? And how are you going to communicate with them? What numbers do you need? You don't need everybody to like you. How many votes do you need to win that election? And how are you going to get those votes? So calculating up those simple figures and targeting your campaign based on those is really the first step that any candidate needs. And we find that quite, um, it's really helped a lot of the women that we're working with for them to realize that actually there's some basic background work that I can do that will make this planning a lot more straightforward and make achieving what I need to achieve a lot more measurable. The second thing is building your team. You've got to build a tight team around you. Many women think, that they can start off and they can do it all themselves. They can be the campaign manager, they can be the candidate, they can be the online manager, they can be the director of elections, you name it, they know best. Absolutely not. You are the candidate, it means you cannot do anything else. You need to hire your campaign manager and you need to hand over control to them of your campaign. And that is the most vital step. And recently, we've been working with a number of women who haven't done that um, and are reflecting now that that was the biggest failure of their campaign, not being willing to trust someone else with the nuts and bolts. So I would say, do your research, understand the election you're fighting and how to win it, and get the right team around you and give that team some control. Do you find that um, men are able to do this or have more experience in being able to release um, themselves into trusting hands of, you know, leadership and creating their team? I suppose it's just that there are fewer women fighting elections here than there are men. So this, 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 this has happened less um, in the past. I, I think that the parties have supported men traditionally over the years and built teams ar- um, around them and with them. A lot of our female candidates are new, so they're coming into the field and developing their own teams as they do so, and this is quite a new phenomenon. So it's just a slightly different context. I do think that men, this has come out um, from our sessions in Ireland, that men are slightly more comfortable with being the candidate than women are. Women tend to enjoy more the behind-the-scenes fight, the planning the campaign, the organizing, rather than seeing their face on a poster looking at them up and down the street. Um, That's just an anecdotal difference that we've come across, and I don't say it's a science, but that's our experience. Thank you. Moher, there is a question here from Morgan in Ramallah right. um, mm-hmm. asking if being from India and having grown up in Pakistan and now campaigning and living um, in such a conservative state as Arizona has hindered or helped you? 
it's it's kind of ironic that on some respects it's been an asset because people once they meet me they remember me so that is an asset also they and and that's just the way things are they just assume that i am either brighter than i am or that i'm a physician or my husband's a physician and they put me in a somewhat different social class that doesn't necessarily hurt among some segments of my district yes there are people who would never consider me local enough for them although i have been in tucson now for about 31 years but mercifully that's a small percentage um when i ran the last time i came so close which went to which basically went to show me that my name isn't an issue and my background isn't that much of an issue yes it is an issue and i just have to overcome it it just means to work a bit harder and get my face out there more thank you tiffany one of the questions that's come in for you is coming actually from nogales um mexico site and they're asking if you can describe how the united states ranks in terms of women in elected office sure the united states is currently tied with i believe it's turkmenistan at number 73 according to the united nations which of course um for many people is quite appalling for what is often described as the leading democracy in the world um i believe rwanda is still at the top of that list um obviously we have a long way to go and it's part of the reason why i think um niev and women around the world who are working on this issue actually have a lot to teach us here you know many people often will ask me when we're going to start a white house project in some other part of the world and i always give them that statistic and then you know comment that if anything we need some women from other parts of the world to come and help us start our own revolution here Thank you. Deb, there's a question that's come in for you from Auckland, New Zealand, and they're asking, I think her name is Debbie. She's asking or Deb, her name's Deb too. That's what's confusing me because it's saying Deb from Deb. Um she's mm-hmm. wanting to know um if you provide training in other countries and how that training might vary based on cultures and countries. Yeah, sure, thank you. Actually, it varies also in America because in the south we're very different than when I train up north. So I have to take an account for, you know, just where I am. When I train in other countries, it's usually telling women that because their government has opened the door for them to either have a seat in parliament or another elected position, they need to learn to fill the space. You have been given an opportunity, now take it. Don't be shy. when i was training especially in sri lanka you know the women there say well you know we've just now been invited we'll stop acting like a guest and act like an owner and if i can get most of these women to fill the space to understand that you are now part of a process and no longer on the outside looking in they can become more comfortable in their skin which will help them in their governance So um I believe all of our friends on the call will tell you that you've got to find a space within yourself and believe that since you have now been chosen you now must fulfill that responsibility. So the primary thing I train is that you realize what position you have, figure out what it will take to help you be seen as a powerful person and then fill that space mentally, emotionally, physically. so you become that big person that everybody else is assuming you are because you now have this position of authority that is universal that's universal all around the world thank you tiffany talk to us about the work that the white house project is doing that represents cultural diversity within the united states in how you actually achieve that Sure. So the White House project um has a strong commitment to diversity when it comes to leadership even uh, amongst women and are very proud that over half of 
the women we serve are women of color. Um, this is really um, probably steeped in our social justice work and um, being born, in fact, out of the Ms. Foundation for Women and our founder, Marie Wilson, who had an, an incredible uh, commitment to, um, to this aspect of the work. We partner with women's funds across the country who often have access to the leaders who have platforms and have issues that they care about in their communities, but um, would not otherwise envision them their own selves as leaders, particularly in politics. And we go out and we recruit these women based on what's important to them. So, for example, one of our alums in upstate New York, um, you know, really cared deeply about the health care disparity in her community. Um, it was essentially a food desert. There was a Popeye's chicken and a McDonald's and a Burger King, but there had not been a grocery store within the city limits for over 15 years. And she felt, you know, that a grocery store in her community would really make an impact, particularly amongst the African-American residents. She was African-American herself. She spent some time lobbying the city council to get a grocery store in her town, but to no avail. And when we first suggested that she run for an open seat, she balked at the notion, right? She says that those people don't represent me. They haven't been listening to me. Don't you know I've been lobbying for this grocery store for over a year? And, you know, once we were able to, you know, convince her that, Actually, if she was really committed to that grocery store, that her platform as a city council person could help her to achieve that, um, you know, she really was able to turn that around. So, you know, that's really the method that we've used for years to recruit um, a diverse group of women to really think more deeply about their civic engagement and to really think about how to um, get a seat at the table instead of um, always simply knocking on the halls of power. And we've been really effective over the years as a result. Well, I want to tie that in with Deb's comment for the listener in New Zealand. So Deb's saying that when we've been invited to the table to take ownership and stop acting like, a, you know, we're a guest and you're taking, you know, you gave an example of a woman who is being in, you know, the, the door is clearly open. She's actually walked through the door but still didn't see her herself in an ownership position and in that leadership capacity of greater influence. Is this um, is this typical? And, and, Deb, I'm asking you to also chime in here. How does a woman internally make that transition? It's because they then do what Neve said. They've surrounded themselves with a team and enough people saying, you can do it, you can do it. Or do they have to internally have an awakening that says, you know what, enough of trying to, you know, get myself there. Let me already accept ownership and know that I'm here. Well, as Marion Wright Edelman has taught us, you can't be what you can't see. So one of the first steps are interventions like the you know Yale Campaign's Law School, like the White House Project, that provide these women access to women who look like them and care about the same things that they care about, who, as Deb mentioned really poignantly, have already gone through the experience and can vouch for um, its effectiveness, but also the reality of what it really means to be running as a woman or as a woman of color or as a very young woman um, and how to build that credibility. So I think one of the steps and envisioning yourself as that leader is actually getting access and exposure to people who are like you, who have already gone through the process, and really demystifying that for them. Deb, you, you should weigh in, too. Thank you. And you know what, like, like they do at the White House Project at the Women's Campaign School at Yale, your trainers are women who work in the industry. We decided long time ago there's plenty of good guys who work and train out there, but women need to see that other women just like them can run campaigns, can do the polling, can do the financial side, can be the speech coach. So we, we put the top women in the nation before our audience for that five-day campaign school. It's very rigorous, but the fact is um, you, you need to see other people who look like you who have the same concerns you have being very successful in this business. 
And it's also about building your network, about finding women who do the kind of work that you will need for your campaign. Um, you know, plenty of guys use women campaign teams. However, we find that your message is more clear when a woman uses a woman's campaign team. I don't know if that's across the board, but I have seen that in my own life as a female candidate. Very different when I have a male campaign manager versus a female campaign manager. So not only are we training candidates at the Women's Campaign School at Yale, we also train people to work in campaigns because there's a whole other opportunity there for you to help good people get there. And I'll just add into this, and I know my friends will agree, if you don't have a fire in your belly to run for office and make change, this is going to be the most miserable year of your life. Because at the end of the day, when there's no one to pat you on the back, you still better believe in why you're running and why you are the best person for the job. So we can't always look to people on the outside. It's got to be your heart's desire. Your campaign team will never love you enough to give you the strength to go off over that finish line. It is basically through sheer determination, grit, and guts they'll push you through. I have won elections. I have lost elections. But I don't go down easy in elections because I truly believe that I deserve to be there because I have a message that works. And I'm sure our friends at these other campaign schools will tell you, if you're here just to test the water, that's okay, but you're never going to win testing the water. You've got to jump in and learn to swim. I agree. Um, I was nodding my head while she was talking just now. I absolutely agree, uh, especially the point about if you're a female, it's easier and uh, to convey your message if you have a team of women there. Last time I ran, I had some men on my campaign advising me, and that was a bit of a mistake because they tried to tamp down some of the women-oriented messages by calling them weak. I certainly did not have them on my campaign this time because I realized that men sometimes think that women's issues are perceived as being soft, be it education, uh, health care, reproductive rights, or whatever, I was taken aback. So this time I've got people around me, not yes women, but people around me who understand some of the issues that I choose to run on. Thank you. Ladies, thank you so much for being here with Sylvia Global today. I'd like to give you each a closing question um, to respond to and extend an invitation for you to not only come back, but to share this broadcast um, with your followers so that we can help to facilitate um, getting women into elected office and creating conversations that support women along that road around the world, regardless of their place in life or the place, the type, the level of office and their location within the world. Our presence and our voices remains powerful and very necessary. So the closing question for you, Deb, is where are the greatest global opportunities for women and this discussion of getting women into elected office, and how can Sylvia Global help facilitate and our listeners help support women in doing this? Well, Sylvia, first let me thank you for having me on the show. Women's Campaign School at Yale certainly appreciates the fact that you sought us out to put us on today, and I personally appreciate the invitation. You know, I'm going to... I'm going to answer it in the most simple terms. Begin where you are. You think globally, and I think locally, because the fact is, if it's your village, if it's your city, your state, your nation, or your country, begin where you are. Find your connections. Let your voice be heard. Build your foundation. We need you now more than ever. The fact is, we know that when women run, things change. Uh, So it's not, you know, where globally, right where you live right where you live and hear me you can do this you can do this you have the power within you you have the connections you have the people who believe in you and think about the people that are hoping you'll finally be the woman we thought you were fill the space take Mm -hmm. a space fill the void use the voice that you have not only for people to hear but to listen and to change their lives begin where you are Mm -hmm. thank you Thank you very much, Deb. So, Phil, we appreciate you being here. Neve, closing question for you. Uh, in, you, I was introduced to Deb Sofil because of you having attended the Women's Campaign School at Yale. And I was introduced to, um, it was through Tiffany, 
that a connection was also made with you and I. How do we promote these connections among women and organizations, and how can we use them to support the work that you are doing in Ireland in order to get women in elected office? I think she is off the line. I got an email from her. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Neve. Um, I'm sorry if we lost you there. Um, Neve Gallagher from um, Dublin, Ireland, one of the co-founders of Women for Election. She is featured on the homepage of SylviaGlobal.com um, this week. Tiffany, closing co- question for you. Uh, define success at a national and a global level in terms of the work of the White House Project. Well, thank you um, as well for having me. It's just been such a pleasure um, and also to be with such distinguished guests. Um, Success within all levels of leadership, diversified with talented, adaptable women ready to lead in the 21st century. I don't think that that vision is too far off, and we're working very furiously along with our colleagues um, to make that reality happen, and I encourage um, anyone to go to thewhitehouseproject.org to learn more about our work. Thank you. Mohar Sidwa, thank you so much for being here with us today on Sylvia Global. We know that you, um, you're you staying in the race. You're going to win the race. Um, your closing comments and words to women who are contemplating running for office. They have to run, and if they feel the confidence, because that is important, if they feel the confidence that they can do it, they absolutely must run, even if that means running a second time. Sometimes it depends on the state or the city that you're in. There are internal politics going on. Trust that you have the message. Trust that you have the passion. Trust that you can make change. Choose to make a difference. And that is the biggest thing that they could take away from uh, from what I've just said, is choose to make a difference. And if you're not at the table, you cannot have a voice at the table. And there are too few women in politics in the U.S., especially in state legislatures. And you have to have a voice at the table because a lot of things that impact women in their everyday life happens at the state level, not at the federal level. So if they don't get involved, then they are leaving their futures and their children's futures up to people who who may think very differently from them. And that's my and thank you, Sylvia, for everything and I thank Sylvia Global very much. I appreciate you being here and taking the time. Hope that all of you will come back and most importantly Um, Please continue to do the work that you do because you are needed. Uh, This is Gail Sylvia, host of SylviaGlobal.com. Joining me today have been four incredible women from around the world addressing women in elected office. Why are we needed and how do we get there? You can hear this broadcast again on iTunes as a podcast under Sylvia Global and also at SylviaGlobal.com website. Thank you so much. Enjoy the day and come back again. Thank you. Bye.